This message is from Grace Church, located in Frisco, a suburb of Dallas-Fort Worth. The Grace Church website is gracechurchfrisco.org. Craig Cabanis, the lead pastor, is the speaker for this message. As you find a seat, if you could open up your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1. Feeling motivated. I might have a freestyle rap here for you. It's, it's, it's possible. Strange, stranger things have happened. No, I'll just, uh, not much. Yeah, that's a good line. That's true. Not much stranger's happened than that. Let me pray and uh, we'll jump in. Lord, thank you for your many graces to us as a people, your multitude of provisions and kindnesses and mercies, which we experience new every morning. And as we look at your word this evening, we just pray that you would speak clearly to us. We pray that you would open our eyes to what you're calling us to do. Lord, I pray two things, that we would see what you've done for us already, and that we'd see what you're calling us to do in response, and uh, that your grace would cover all of that, Lord. And, and most of all, show us the Lord Jesus Christ, for every page of the scripture points to your Son. And we pray today that we might uh, glory in Jesus, that we might uh, honor and worship him, that we might celebrate what he's done, that we might come expressing our needs. And so come today and meet us, we pray, Father, through the Son and by the power of the Spirit. Open our ears to hear and our hearts to respond to your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, let me uh, say before we look at this text, uh, what, what's coming up. I'm really looking forward to next week. So if you can be here, by all means, please come because we're celebrating a 10th year anniversary. And uh, so I'm going to take a break from First Peter uh, that week. And I just want to uh, talk about milestones and the importance of milestones and recognize what are some of the milestones in our history. We all have histories. Uh, you have a personal history, you have a family history, um, you have a work history, we have a national history, uh, and this church has a history. And it's really important that we recognize in the scripture, there's a big emphasis on recognizing the work of the Lord in the past uh, to thank him and to receive fresh faith for his work in the future. So I'm going to preach the word, but I'm also going to tell some stories. So it'll be a little bit like uh, grandpa at Thanksgiving telling the stories of the way when, when your mother was little and all that kind of stuff. So a little bit of that. Um, and through the scripture. And I, I, I trust it'll encourage you with some special things too, testimony, uh, video, some, some fun stuff. So uh, I, I hope you can make it. Uh, we'll do the picnic in the morning, and then we'll do that at night. And then also want to let you know about one other significant milestone that's coming up, and that is our annual Generations Fund offering, where we give and where we pledge uh, by faith what we plan to give for the next year toward the building uh, of our building. And so it's up and going. Things are happening. Uh, it's not paid for. Uh, it's in the process. Some of it's paid for, but not all of it. And so we are going to rally around again this year and pray and make our pledges. So I'm just letting you know that now. That's November 1st. We'll talk about that through some sermons before then. But I want you to know about that now so you could be thinking and be praying, Lord, what would you be calling us to do? How could we invest uh, in something that will ex- go beyond our lives? Uh, and that is the ministry of the preaching of the gospel in the heart of our city. And uh, so that's what we'll be doing on November 1st and talking about it since then, uh, before then. So you can certainly pray about that. Okay, uh, here's what we're doing in First Peter. If you're new, 
Uh, thanks for coming. You haven't missed much. We've only done two sermons on this book. It's a, it's a book written in the, the 60s, A.D. 60s, so the first century. It's written to some suffering Christians in an area of the world that would be now Turkey. It was called Asia Minor then. It would be modern-day Turkey. And Peter is writing to them, and he's telling them that their life, they are like what he calls, verse 1, elect exiles. That is, they're chosen by God as believers in Jesus. They're chosen to be part of God's family, and yet they're exiles. They're foreigners. They live, uh, they live they're, like from a, they're like a resident alien, a foreigner, someone who's exiled from their homeland, because their homeland is really heaven with their Lord Jesus Christ. But now they are living in this world and they're being resisted. These people are experiencing some persecution for their faith, some resistance. It's costing them. They're experiencing um, ostracism, social rejection. uh, And we see that throughout the book. And so he's teaching them, how do you live as an elect exile? And the first thing he does in verses 3 through 12, we looked at last week. The first thing he does is he tells them what God has done for them. That's where he starts. He doesn't start with life is hard, so go do these three things. Life is difficult, so start this one new religious practice and you'll be okay. He doesn't start there. He starts with what God has done for them. And he says, hey, look, you're suffering, but here's the first thing I want you to know. Praise God. He starts with praise. Praise God, uh, our Father, because according to his mercy, he has caused us to be born again. He's given us new life. He's given us a living hope. And he's giving us an eternal inheritance. So the first thing he does is start talking about heaven. It's like, wow, are we going to die quickly? I know it's bad, but we're talking about heaven because he wants them to have this eternal vision because that will affect them now. Here's what Peter's doing. Someone suggested this. I think it's a perfect metaphor. It's like one of those sailing ships that you've seen in a movie or maybe in a cartoon, uh, if you're more like me, but a movie or a cartoon, one of those older sailing ships, uh, maybe back even in pirate days, that kind of a deal. And the guys on the deck are all worn out. The sailors are history, man. They've been through a storm. They're running out of food. It's just been a hard go. It's been a difficult, and they're weary, and they're discouraged. And then there's always that perch up at the top, and the sailor that's up at the top with the, uh, what's that thing called, like the long telescope thing, that he just kind of stretches out there, and he's spotting, and he sees land up ahead. And he calls down to the sailors on the deck and says, hey, our future is bright. It's going to be okay. The storm's over. I can see the land up ahead. And just hearing that empowers the weary sailors to know a little bit longer, and then our journey will be over. Well, Peter is writing this book. He's the guy up in the perch, and he can see, because the Lord's given him vision, uh, Uh, miraculously, supernaturally, he can see where we're going. And it's to a glorious heaven. It's to a wonderful inheritance, a new heavens and a new earth. And God is holding us, holding that for us. And he says throughout the letter, so so press on because this inheritance awaits. So today he's going to say a little bit something different up from the perch. He's going to call us on the deck. He's going to call us to action. He's going to issue a CTA, a call to action, and tell us what to do. He starts with what God has done for us. And now he's going to move to what we are to do in response to all that God has done for us. So let's read verse 13. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. 
as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, so also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart since you've been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. So what he's, having laid all the foundation of what God has done by giving them new life, by giving them an inheritance, verses 10 to 12, which we didn't even get to last week was part of that section as well. Uh, It just basically, he was saying, hey, even all the prophets pointed to this day and said that, that one day Christ would be coming. They longed to know of this day. He's telling them all the Old Testament is about Christ and points to Christ. And you live in the days of those who know Christ. So given all of that, He calls them to look at the future, to know their inheritance, and to have that affect their lives today. That's what he does. He calls them. Here's the truth. We have to focus on the future to know how to live today. That's what he's telling them. He's telling these struggling Christians, set your hope. Look at verse 13. Verse 13. This is the point of the whole passage. He's saying, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Set your hope on Jesus. He doesn't say cultivate hope. He doesn't say become hopeful. He doesn't say strengthen your hope muscle or something like this. He says set your hope on Jesus. He doesn't say work on your hope. He says look to Jesus and hope will come. He doesn't say try to summon hope. He says, look to Christ and hope will be yours. Anticipate the return of Christ and you will find hope. Anticipate the return of Christ. Hear the voice of the sailor in the perch who has spotted the land. Be the sailor who hears that and know that as if, we, if we anticipate the return of Christ, we will find hope. Focus on that day of grace. That's what he says. Hope, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That's the return of Jesus. <clears throat> so set your hope on that day of grace, and you'll find grace for today. Do you hear that? Set your hope on that day of grace, and you will find grace for today. Now, the text we're reading answers the question, how do we maintain hope in a hopeless world? How do we maintain this hope? How do we maintain hope when we face trials? 
when we face difficulties, when we face resistance, even persecution, suffering? How do we maintain hope when we are cultural foreigners, when we feel like we're resisted, rejected, when we feel like our mindset is at odds with the mindset of the cultural, culture around us? What do we do at that time? How do we maintain our hope? Well, when we set our hope fully on eternity... And the returning Christ, another way is to say when we set our hope on Christ, when we believe the gospel, that will lead to three actions that this passage talks about. So set your hope fully on Christ, and that leads to three actions, right? It leads us to think right, it leads us to uh, live right, and it leads us to love right. It leads us to right thinking, we could say, right living and right loving. If we set our hope on the return of Christ, I mean, that old saying, you know, so have, the person was so heavenly minded that they're no earthly good. That is completely not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches if you want to be at all any earthly good to anyone, you must be heavenly minded. You must have your eye on the Lord. You must anticipate eternity. You must think for eternity, and that must drive the decisions you make today to count. If we don't think of eternity and we just think of today, we'll we'll inevitably make foolish decisions with our lives. But if we think about forever, if we think about standing before the Lord, the judge, if we think about bringing him honor and glory, it will impact our lives today so that we will have right thinking, right living, and right loving. Here's how I'd say it in a sentence. Right thinking, right living, and right loving come from setting our hope on Christ's return. And that's what Peter says to these struggling people, to set your hope on Christ's return. Let's first of all talk about right thinking or the the command, I'll just say it this way, think right, which if you're an English teacher, you probably didn't like that, but I don't think that sounds correct. Think correctly, um, but think right is how I'm going to say it. That's what he says. Therefore, prepare your minds for action and be sober-minded. Verse 13, prepare your minds for action and be sober-minded. So he's now told us something to do. If you were here last week, there was no commands really in the passage. I said, praise the Lord, but he said, blessed be the Lord. It even wasn't a direct command. So we don't get commands of stuff to do until here. And look at where it starts, verse 13. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope. So we're to set our hope, that's the call, but we are to think rightly. But before he calls us to think rightly... Uh, if you, this will be the most important thing I'm going to say in the whole sermon in terms of reading your Bible. I may say more important things about this passage, but this is the most important thing I'll tell you today about reading your Bible. Before he gives them any command, he says, therefore. What's the therefore? The therefore is based on because of his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope. See, he tells us what God has done for us before he tells us what to do. The Bible is always that way. We are always, what God has done comes before our due. Done always precedes due. Gospel always precedes command. Gospel must always lead to command, but gospel must always precede command. When there is command without gospel, that is called legalism. That is called seeking to affirm myself before the Lord by what I do, as opposed to acting because of what he's done for me and empowered by him. Done always precedes do. So therefore is where he starts. Ed Clowney said this, the imperatives, an imperative is a command. So I'm going to change the word. The commands of Christian living always begin with therefore. Remember that. The commands of Christian living always begin with therefore. 
before God tells us to do anything, he will always tell us what Jesus has done for us to pardon us from our failures and to empower us to obey him. He will always tell us what Jesus did first. And we must always tie our obedience to what Christ has done. We don't ever just hear the good news and do nothing. We hear the good news and that prompts obedience. And this is all over the scripture. But I just want to point it out because it's right here. And so uh, grace will produce fruit in our lives. Grace will lead to empowering us to obey. We don't separate. uh, There's not a separation between grace and obedience. The grace of God changes us to obey him. But we dare not obey. Um, We dare not seek to obey, to create our own rules and try to obey without his power and without having a vision of what he's done for us in Christ through the cross and resurrection. So as we're thinking about our lives, we're thinking, what's the therefore? Because that's sustaining. I just shouldn't do this. What's the therefore that leads to I just shouldn't do this? Well, Christ has ransomed me for himself. He has bought me with a price to glorify him. Okay, well, that's, that's a there. So I've got a, there, a lot of therefores based on that. So therefore, the commands of Christian living always begin with therefore because of what he's done. So therefore, prepare your minds. Prepare your minds for action. Now, literally, the reason it says prepare your minds is because Peter uses an idiom that none of us uh, would understand if he just if it was literally translated it literally is is should be translated gird up your loins which sounds concerning um but that's what it literally means and what that means is this gird up your loins it says prepare your mind for action gird up your loins for action what girding up your loins was, I'm not going to uh, fully demonstrate, but men in that day would have worn robes or at least shirts that would have gone fully down to their, uh, would have looked like a robe, uh, a shirts that would have gone down to their feet. And so if you were going to be active, you were going to run or something like that. I mean, I've never worn a dress, but I'm guessing like running in a long dress would be really hard. And so that's what it would be like. So you couldn't just go out and just start running. You'd be tripping. So what you did was you would wrap it and you would pull the robe up like this and then you would tuck it down in your belt. You would probably look really goofy. You know, this guy who's, uh, you know, just got his whole robe kind of tucked up like that. But then you could move. You'd be agile. And so if you were going to run, if you were going to do some kind of activity that you didn't want to trip and required some movement or required something quick, if you were going to, you know, maybe not just uh, do something uh, like running, but maybe doing some certain kind of work where you'd need to be able to move and you wouldn't want to trip, you would gird up your loins. You'd take your robe, you'd pull it up, you'd tuck it down in your belt or whatever, and then your legs, you'd still be covered and your legs would be free to move. So he's saying, gird up your loins for action, but, but it's, it's your mind. Prepare your minds. Gird up the loins of your mind for action. Gird up the loins of your mind. Here's how we might say it. We might say, roll up the sleeves of your mind. When we're going to get to work, right, we roll up our sleeves. I came ready to work today. We're going to roll up our sleeves. Roll up the sleeves of your mind. Based on the fact of what Jesus has done for you, what God has done for you, based on the inheritance that awaits you, okay, now here's what you need to do. You need to get ready to think. Roll up the sleeves of your mind. Think in a way that prepares you to live and to act as one who will soon die and stand before Christ. 
Live and act as one who has been bought by Christ. Live and act as one who has eternity in front of you and fill your mind with truth that will help you keep in front of you the truth of what Jesus has done for you and where he's taking you, the inheritance that awaits you, and live in that reality. Think about that. Prepare your minds for action. I mean, I cannot overemphasize the importance of filling our minds with truth for action. That's what he's saying. We need our minds renewed is what Romans says. Paul writes in Romans. We need a new way of thinking. Why? Because we're cultural foreigners and we can just adopt the customs of the host culture that we live in and we can miss out on having our mind renewed. And so he says, roll up your sleeves because it's work to fill your mind with truth. It's glorious, but it's work strengthen yourselves. It's just like an athlete would strengthen himself or herself with food. The Christian must strengthen his mind with truth if we're going to live and we're going to make a difference. I recently heard an interview with Dwayne Wade. I'm not necessarily a Dwayne Wade fan, but uh, he's a, he plays for the Miami, he's a guard for the Miami Heat. And uh, okay, uh, so somebody likes the Miami Heat. So he plays for them, and uh, I listened to this interview. He's quite an articulate guy. I'd never really heard him interviewed. Uh, quite articulate. And I heard him tell his story. He's 33 years old, and this is what he said. He said that when I hit 30, everything changed. Now, he's a professional athlete, okay? So in basketball, in some sports at 30, if you're a golfer, okay, you got plenty of time. But in basketball... Uh, you know, some guys are coming right out of high school or they're playing, most of them are playing a year or two in college. So the new guys coming in are 19 years old, 20 years old. And so at 30, you don't have what you had back when you were their age. So he said, I had to change everything about my eating. He said, I never ate a vegetable till I was 30. He said, I was, he said, in my twenties, I would run 48 minutes in the game and stop by for cheeseburgers at McDonald's after the game. I was pizza, world-class athlete. So that every, so when you go get a a burger, when we're serving cheeseburgers next week, uh, at the, uh, at the party, at the celebration for our church, our anniversary, if you're under 30, you can say, this is the food of world-class athletes. Okay. Cause that's what he said he ate. Now, if you're over 30, what he said was he now travels with a professional chef. Everything that goes in his mouth is measured. I think he has one cheat day a, a week. So six days a week, Everything that goes in his mouth, the, the exact ingredients, the balance of what he eats between proteins and carbs and fats and everything. It's all measured. It's all because he said, I have to fill my body constantly with the highest level of nutrition to be able to continue to compete. Because at 30, I saw the end and I go, man, I, I'm slowing down. I could be done here or I can take care of myself and feed myself right, and I'm going to be able to play as long as possible. So it's like peak performance. He said, I never had a salad till I was 30. Now I'm eating them all the time. I have to eat them. I still would rather eat burgers and pizza, but that's what I want to eat. I want to eat tacos, but I can't do that. I have to eat this other way. And I thought, that is the Christian life. We have seen the end like Dwayne Wade saw of his career. We have seen the end. And because of the glory for us, maybe not for him, but the glory of what lies in front of us, we want to feed our mind with the highest nutrition because mental cheeseburgers 
all day, every day, will not train you to be able to think the thoughts of God and live for him and glorify him in this culture. The the issue is this, is that we are foreign, we are outsiders, our home is heaven. And so the question becomes, are we adopting the truths of our homeland, that is the kingdom of God and the, the Lord, or are we adopting the truths of our surrounding culture? And we are we are every day bombarded with messages around our culture. The culture we live in, we are bombarded with messages about what is success. You will drive out of here tonight, I don't care what direction you go, where you live, and you will see all around you the, the signs of what our culture calls success. And it's not necessarily what God calls success. Our culture says wealth is one thing. It's how much is in your bank. The the, the scripture does not teach that that is wealth. That the greatest wealth is knowing God, loving God, knowing his people, loving his people, living on mission for him. That's the greatest wealth in the world, knowing him. The culture will never tell you that. The culture will constantly be communicating to you that you need comfort that and what that is, that you need to be pampered, that it is all about you, that you need to make it all about you. And the truth of Scripture is that we need to make much of Christ, and we need to make much of investing our lives in others. All around you will hear messages about what people matter and what people don't matter. The strong, the bright, the wealthy, the gifted, the athletic, the attractive, uh, these are the people that matter. And those who don't fit in those categories, they are on the outside. And yet Jesus says, no, he runs straight to the outsiders. He says, if you're having a party, invite the outsiders. You'll never get that in this culture. You'll get a momentary sentimental feeling about helping a hurting person and how that's good. You'll occasionally get that. But you will not get a lifestyle of living sacrificially for eternity and caring for those who are marginalized and outside. If you listen to this culture, I don't care if you're on the right or if you are on the left, you will hear there is political promise that will change the world. And we're going to be hearing about it now for a year. It's already started. This candidate will change everything. If you're on the right, then you have a certain set of values that this candidate, and you can make the argument that this is God's biblical values. And if you're on the left, there's religious on the left and the right. If you're on the left, you can make those. I can make arguments from both sides. You can make arguments on the left that says this is the candidate that would honor the Lord. And all of it is political. It's rooting our hope. You should be a faithful citizen. You should vote. You should know the issues. Absolutely. We should never fix our hope in a party, in a platform, or in a person. Our par- it's the kingdom of God, and our person is the Lord Jesus Christ. So the culture will tell you this will change everything. It holds out political promise. The messages about, we talked about that this summer, but messages about sex bombard us. What is sexual fulfillment? What is the good sex life all around us? And they're contrary to what the scripture says. What is the purpose of your work? There will be some that will say the purpose of your work is to find your identity. And so work is a God. Work becomes who you are. Work describes everything about you. It's an idolatry. That that is promoted, not always, but many times that is promoted in our culture. 
If you want to get ahead, you've got to live for work. On the other hand, are people who says, I don't care anything about my work. I'm doing the minimal. I'm just trying to get to the weekend to party. Or the Christian version of that is, I'm just doing whatever. This doesn't matter. It's not spiritual. I'm just doing what I can to get to community group and church on Sunday and family devotions because that's spiritual. And this is both, both are unbiblical approaches to work. But you could be thinking that if you're not reading the scripture and thinking God's thoughts, which our work is not an idol. It's not a, it is a means to glorify and worship the Lord in whatever you do for 40 or 50 or 60, whatever it is, hours. Um, so that is, that is all around us. And, and so we want to be sober-minded, he says, right? Prepare, roll up your sleeves, of your mind for action and be sober-minded is what he says. Be sober-minded. All around us, the culture says, it, it will never tell you Jesus is enough. It will always tell you you need something else. So we have to think his thoughts. Well, what? how do we live sober-mindedly? How do we prepare our minds for action? Well, really, I think it comes at the end of the passage. Look at verse 23. He says, since you have been born again, okay, we're back to that again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, that's what God's done for us, through the living and abiding word of God, verse 24, for all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever, and this word is the good news that was preached to you. Suffering Christians, Peter says, Work, get your mind right. Think right. You'll never live right if you don't think right. And the way you're going to think right is to think the thoughts of what is enduring. The word of the Lord is eternal, and that's the good news that was preached to you. This word is eternal. The good news is eternal. And as I'm thinking those thoughts, I will then live in a way that honors the Lord. If I'm not exposed here, if I'm not thinking here, if I'm not receiving my nutrition as a believer, if I'm eating junk food or eating nothing, not getting exposed to any truth of God, just like fast eating nothing, I'll be malnourished. I'll never be able to live the purpose God has placed on my life. And he says, look at the, the all flesh, all people and all their glory are like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls. They're here for a day and then gone. The glory of people, the glory of humanity is just here and then it's gone. Nobody remembers. Nobody remembers. Put you in the ground and life moves on. It, it, I mean, really, we remember people we're close to, but you don't remember everybody in the world where people are gone. Whoever the latest and greatest is, they'll be gone, and then the new latest and greatest is coming. But the word of the Lord lasts forever. And so he's saying, as a foreigner and as a stranger, listen to the word of God. That's how we prepare our minds for action. So come up with some means. If you need help, ask someone in your small group. If you're not in a small group, ask someone at the Connect Center, ask one of the leaders, ask an usher, ask anybody. They'll point you to one of the pastors. If you don't know how to read the Bible or you don't know how to get started, that is okay. There is nothing wrong in not knowing how to read the Bible. That is, that is not wrong. Learn, and you can, we can help you. Someone can help you. Someone in a small group can help you. Someone could do a one-to-one study. We do one-to-one studies in our church. A bunch of people have done these where two people or three people sit down and they actually go through the Scripture together and learn how to think about it and learn how to apply it. 
So we can help you with that. So there's no shame. Do not be embarrassed. If you're new, do not be able to say, man, okay, he's saying read the Bible. I didn't even know, I didn't even know Luke from Leviticus. I don't know anything. Well, we can find someone. Let us help you out with that and get you going. And you will find very quickly that with just a little time and a little waiting on the Lord and a little prayer asking for help, your life will be changed and God will give you an appetite for the scripture. Um, so that's number one, think right. Number two is live right. Look at verses 14 through 16. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. God says, based on what I've done for you, based on your eternal inheritance, based on the fact I'm holding that for you for eternity, get your mindset on me and your eternity, and then live obediently. And I love how he says this, as obedient children. Isn't that beautiful? When God calls us to obedience in this passage, he calls us to obey him as a child to a father. He doesn't say obey random rules from a tyrant. That's not the Bible. That's not the picture of the Bible. That's a picture of pagan gods. That's not the picture of the Bible. He says, obey me, be an obedient child as a child to the Father. Isn't that wonderful? Because he's the perfect Father, and he wants our best. So all of his law that he calls us to follow in the Scripture, even sometimes we don't understand it fully, um, but all of it is it's the commands of a father. It's don't run out into the street, two-year-old, because he knows and he loves and it's to glorify him. It's to bring honor to the Father, certainly, as well. So we're in a new family, and we're to live in ways that honor him. We're not to be conformed. What does he say? Don't be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. These were mostly Gentiles, and so they used to live in a different way. They used to not know anything about God. And he's saying, don't live that way. You're in a new family. You've been born again to live a new life, so live like new people. And then he says, the next verse, he says, um, verse 15, but as he who has called you is holy, so also be holy in all your conduct. So he calls us to be holy. I call that live right. We could say live righteously. Live a holy life. And he gives three reasons to live a holy life in this passage. The first one is because God is holy. Right? Verse 15 he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. That means in all your lifestyle. Now, what does holy mean? Holy means at its basis to be set apart. It means to be set apart. And often for us in our culture, holiness is seen as like some outdated list of rules. It's always outdated and it's always what you're not supposed to do. There's never thing, anything positive on there about what you are supposed to do. Maybe go to church. But that's often the way the culture understands holiness. Holiness means this. It means that we are set apart for God. And he says, can live holy lives in all of your conduct because, you're, because God is holy. So holiness, from this verse, I think the most basic definition of holiness, besides set apart, is to act like God. To imitate God. That would be holiness. And where do we see the way of God? Well, we see the way of God most clearly in Jesus, don't we? And we see it throughout Scripture. But when God becomes man, Jesus, we see holy living. No one has ever lived on earth a holy life like Jesus. 
He's perfectly holy. And I want, I want you to think about that for a minute because some of us have misconceptions about holiness like it's bad. <laughs> that would be really strange. Holiness is bad. No, holy is, is blazing righteousness. It's goodness. But if Jesus is holy, a lot, think about the life of Jesus and allow that to disintegrate false views of holiness that you may hold. When you read the Gospels, do you find Jesus being frumpy, grumpy, mad, sort of slightly irritated and ticked off by all these sinners? Do, do you see like angry, whole, I mean like, you know, uh, impatient Jesus? No, that, that's not holiness in Jesus. Children came running to him. One thing I know about children, they don't run to grumpy people that randomly just sort of bark out orders and jump all over people. Kids keep their distance. We all had that teacher in elementary school. Kids keep their distance. Couldn't wait to get out of that class probably. Children came running to Jesus. So holiness would be something that wouldn't be, you know, it wouldn't be just like someone who's just constantly just grumpy in their holiness. Or do you think of holiness as sort of uppity and self-righteous? Oh, he's all holier than thou. So sometimes we think it's like self-righteous. Well, no, because tax collectors and prostitutes came to Jesus. He, he was, he, well, he was literally self-righteous. He in himself was righteous. But he, so he actually was self-righteous. But he wasn't self-righteous with a self-righteous attitude. Do you think that holiness is creating a long list of rules to put over, external rules to put over the rules of the Bible, so that if we have rules on top of God's rules, but if we add our rules to it, that that would somehow be super holy? No. That's what the Pharisees did, and they hated Jesus. That's not holiness. That's not holiness. Well, what is holiness? Here's what Jesus says is holiness. Holiness is love. He boils down the commandments to two great commandments. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's holiness. And no one's ever done that but Jesus. That's holy living. Living for the glory of God. Making decisions for the glory of God. Thinking for the glory of God. Acting out of love for Jesus. Living a life devoted to him. That, that's holiness. And the other one is, love your neighbor as yourself. Holiness is caring about others. Holiness is preferring others. Holiness is making lifestyle decisions. It's not a list of outdated rules. It's making lifestyle decisions that show love to God and love to others, both believers and unbelievers alike. It means that I live my life not for me, but for God and others. That's holy living. That's holy living. And that works its way out in a thousand different ways. Obviously, a thousand different decisions a day are based on that. But that's the grid for holy living. And it's, it's not always attractive to the culture. And that's why he's saying there is a resistance to that. So the two great commandments are really the basis of what it means to be holy for I am holy. Jesus is perfection demonstrated for us. So why should we seek to live holy lives? Because God's holy. And we are filled with him and imitating him. Number two, why live a holy life? Because of God's judgment. 
Look at verse 17. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. So our father, he says, you call on him as father who judges impartially all of our deeds. So what he's saying is our father is not an indulgent father that looks the other way. Our father is holy. And what we think and what we say and what we do is evaluated by our holy God. And so he calls him father. He is a father who judges impartially. What does that mean? It means that, it means that he holds us accountable. He doesn't say, oh, you're my kid, wink, wink. Oh, yeah, oh, I didn't see that one. Just walk on by. He's not an indulgent father. He is a father, yes. But he is a father that judges equitably, fairly, and so he's saying, hey, live aware that yes, he's your father. So, so get adoption. Get the concept of adoption that God has brought us into his family as a loving father. Yes, get that. But don't abuse that. As if now I'm his kid, I can do whatever I want. No, that's not biblical. That's presumption. That's abuse. That's license. He is a loving father, but he does evaluate and judge our actions. Not that we're saved by our actions. So you don't do enough actions so the father loves you. No, the father already loves you. You're adopted into his family. He says the father. But our actions still matter. And as we're talking about eternity, they are evaluated in some way. Not for salvation, but they're evaluated in some way. And I can't fully explain that. But there is some eternal implication that we're to live with the fear of the Lord with a heightened sense of awe, uh, not fear like he's going to harm us, but a heightened sense of reverence and awe. We're to live that way knowing that he judges and he is impartial. He, we're in his family, we're his kids, we're his father, but there's still, so I don't know if it's a reward that he gives us for what we do for him, if it's crowns that he gives us that we lay, as we see them laying their crowns at his feet. And honoring him, I don't, I, I can't answer all of that. I'm not prepared to answer all of that tonight. But, but it, it does matter, is the point. Why do we live right? Why do we live holy? Because God's character is holy. Number two, because God assesses our lives. So be sober-minded in the fear of the Lord. He's, your, he's our father. But he's a father who sees, and he's a father who is he's not indulgent so that we're to be presumptuous. If we are, we don't understand adoption. If we think, oh, he's adopted me as his kid, I'm in the family, hey, really, who cares what I do? Then if that's the attitude, the question is, have I really been adopted in the family? Because that is an abuse of grace. If I've been adopted in the family, then there will be a heart to want to please and honor and glorify and love the father. Not do the very things that the son had to die for. Why do we live like? Because of God's character, because of God's judgment, because of Jesus' sacrifices. Verses 8, sacrifice, verse 18 and 19. Knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. So why is he saying live this way? Well, he says, first of all, you've been redeemed from feudal ways. You were ransomed from feudal ways... Not, you're not like what your forefathers were. You ransom from all of that, not with silver or gold, but with the blood of Jesus. Jesus died for your sins. So you were in living in futility. What does that mean? Well, this is how Jesus said it. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and lose his soul? You were living in futility. You could have gained everything and it wouldn't have mattered. You could have had your best life now and it would not have mattered. You could have had all the prosperity in the world and it would not matter. 
if you didn't know Jesus? What would it, what would it profit you to gain everything in this life and then eternally be separated from God? So that's the futility of your life. Now you've been saved by his blood and you have a purpose. You're not living a futile life. You're living now what you do with your life counts and it matters. Before it was futility in a long-term eternal perspective. Now it matters. And we've been saved by Jesus' blood. He died for our sins. And he says that was the plan of salvation from before the foundation of the world. We have a permanent and an eternal hope in him. That's what he says. He was foreknown from the foundation of the world and he made it manifest in these last times for your sake. Why do we live a holy life? Because Jesus died for our sins. We don't want to live in sin because that caused him to endure judgment and the wrath of the father for us. So because of that, we don't want to pursue a life of sin. It's a life of emptiness. It's a life that he shed his blood for. And he shed his blood to forgive us our sins and to empower us to live a different life. We're in a new family. We have, that's one metaphor. We're in a new kingdom. So we're foreigners. That's a different metaphor. And Jesus shed his blood so that we would experience all of that. And so he says, hey, think soberly about what you're doing. It's not just like, hey, here's a list of rules. Well, they, my church says you're not supposed to do this, that, or the other. That's not in here. What's in here is live holy for the Lord, for Jesus shed his blood for us. And what greater motivation is imaginable than the one who sacrificed for us calls us to live for him. And so it must be our joy to live for him. And when it's not our joy, we must ask for his grace. We must ask for help to turn our hearts. That's the big reason Jesus died. He didn't die so that you go, hey, who cares? Just go live how you want. Oh, he's a self-indulgent dad. He's an indulgent dad. He didn't really care. Just do what you want. No, this is sober, holy, gave his life, suffered the wrath of God for our sins, rose out of the grave to defeat sin. Jesus is alive to defeat sin, not so that we can see how much of it we can uh, live in, but how much our life can look like him. Why live a holy life? Because we want to be like him. Our father is holy. And so we're to be like him. Why live a holy life? Because he's not an indulgent father. He's a loving father who wants our best and makes commands that are the best for us and for his glory. But he's not indulgent. And he will hold us accountable. And lastly, because Jesus shed his blood. So Peter's saying how you live really, really matters. And lastly, I'm just going to have to be like super quick on this. But love right, that's where he ends, verse 22, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth. I think your obedience to the truth, the truth is the gospel. If you look at the end of verse 25, and this word of, is the good news uh, that was preached to you. So that's what he talks about here. Um, so obedience to the truth, I believe, is believing the gospel. Having purified, because you don't purify your souls by your actions. Having purified your souls by obedience to the truth, for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from the heart. Now, we'll talk a lot about this as we go through the letter. But this is the last thing he says. He says to them, think about, set your hope on Christ and his return. And realize you were saved to love others. You were purified your soul. You obeyed God. When the good news came to you, you believed it for a sincere brotherly love. Therefore, love one another. Here's the point. If we fix our hope on the return of Christ, it will elevate the priority of God's people in our lives.
a sincere brotherly love. We're to love people that don't know Jesus, absolutely. But here he's talking about other Christians because it's called brotherly love. Love one another. He's speaking to the church. Love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Now, a lot of this, he's going to talk about how that's a witness to the world, but here's the point here. He's, the whole book's about hope, remember? Stand firm, have hope. So we, can, we are called to think right, live right, and love right by setting our hope on the return of Christ. And when we love one another, that helps us keep our hope on him. We need one another. We all lose hope. Our hope leaks. You can have a lot of hope right now, but it will leak. And you will lose hope when the next tragic circumstance comes into your life or my life or the next frustration. And so as we love one another, we help one another walk out the holiness that he's called to. We help one another set our affection. We remind one another that this is not all there is. We remind one another about the inheritance that awaits. We, we take turns sitting in the perch, looking through our telescope and shouting down below, there's land. It's true. I can see it because we all, we all lose our sight and we need the reminder from the scripture. And we can point that out to one another. This is a book about hope. And we receive incredible hope, not only through the scripture, but as others love us well in the church, which we love one another. There is a hope transfer that takes place. There is a help in fixing our eyes on the Lord. We are exiles, but we are exiles together. We are exiles to love one another in community. We're not to be cloistered so that we never leave the community, but we are to build community. We are to know one another and love one another. And so this is the call that he gives. And and that ultimately contributes to not losing hope. Some of you are new. And you say, man, how can I love people? A number of you are new. Actually, a a fair bit of us are kind of new to the church. How can I love people that I don't really know? Well, it's kind of hard. So... We'd love to get to know you. We'd love you to get to, get to know us. We have to know in some ways before we love. We can, we can love as we're getting to know. We can love by taking an interest in people. But ultimately to love people, real love is when I do know someone and it's difficult to love. That's when real love is expressed then. And so you can take steps. You can take steps, uh, you can take steps to visit a small group. That's a way to get to know people. You can participate in something like next uh, Sunday morning as we picnic together to, to come to something where you can meet other people and then we can be on the lookout for other people. Who can we meet? Who can we get to know? Knowing precedes, knowing someone precedes really loving them and caring for them and sharing their burdens and knowing them well enough to know how can we help you? How can I help you set your hope in Christ? And how can you help me? Because I lose my hope. I get discouraged. I walk away in sin. I, my faith is, is fragile sometimes. And I walk in unbelief. And your loving me can help point me to the Lord. So this whole thing here about love is going to be a witness to others. It's the honor of the Lord, to the Lord. But it's also all about hope. So God calls us, based on all that he's done for us, based on giving us new life, based on giving us new heaven and new earth, and holding that for us for eternity. Based on all that, he calls us to right thinking, right living, and right loving that come from setting our hope on Christ's return. And that's the heart that that works itself out into, like I said, thousands of decisions a day. So what are the three rules of how I do that? Oh, it's, it's like when you walk out of here, everything. 
everything is to live holy to the Lord, to love one another for these reasons, and to absorb his scripture and have our thinking transformed so that his thoughts and his desires are what motivate us. It's not just remembering the Christian cliches that I'm supposed to do. It's having my heart transformed so that I see him and know him, my heart set on him so that I live for him and walk a holy life of loving God and loving others. Let's pray. You've been listening to a message from Grace Church. For more information, visit our website or write us at podcast at gracechurchfrisco.org.